From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. At least nine Palestinians were massacred and dozens more wounded by Israeli troops on Thursday. We'll hear voices of Palestinians, including Electronic Intifada editor Ali Abunima. This violence is escalating because it's a direct consequence of Israel's continued theft and expansion on Palestinian land. Settler colonialism is an inherently violent process. Then a conversation between members of Black Alliance for Peace about their opposition to a call made by the organization Ukrainian Solidarity Network for more arms and military support for Ukraine. Because the same principles that were under fire in places like Nicaragua, Syria, Libya, some of these same individuals who signed on to this Ukraine Solidarity Network were individuals who supported interventions on the part of the West, aggression on the part of the West to undermine the legitimacy and the sovereignty of those nations. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, a day after Israeli soldiers massacred nine Palestinians and wounded dozens more at the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank, the attack continued to draw worldwide condemnation. Beth Miller, political director of Jewish Voice for Peace Action, said in a statement, quote, Over and over, the Biden administration has refused to take action in response to Israel's blatant war crimes against Palestinians, all while continuing to send billions of dollars to the Israeli military. Next week, Secretary Blinken is visiting Israel to continue normalizing relations with its far-right extremist and violent government. Enough is enough. The U.S. government must end its complicity in Israel's brutal violence and apartheid. End quote. For the first half of the show, we'll hear Palestinian voices. First, the remarks from Yasmin, an activist with from Maryland to Palestine, speaking on the Martin Luther King holiday weekend at a vigil at the King Memorial here in D.C., then a conversation on the Electronic Intifada podcast with editor Ali Abunima talking about Palestine in 2022 and some of the violence that led to this most recent unleashing of terror. Greatest purveyor of violence in the world, my own government. I cannot be silent. MLK in 1967. MLK's observation has only become more true in the 56 years since he made it. From Iraq to Libya to Afghanistan to every country in South America to Palestine. Some like to refer to the U.S. and Israel as allies, but I like to address the U.S. as an enabler to Israel. Because only an enabler would hand over $4 billion a year to a settler colonialist entity. Only an enabler would knowingly aid the murder and displacement of millions of Palestinians, providing endless supply of American arms. We must realize that without the support of the U.S., Israel would simply not be able to commit its crimes with impunity. And this makes us directly beholden to the fight for a free Palestine, to fight against what our very own government is funding. Each one of us gives $28 a year to Israel. We fund the murder, incarceration, displacement of Palestinians. Our tax dollars are the reason Israel is able to demolish more homes and expropriate more Palestinian land. I don't know about you, but knowing that 28 of my dollars a year goes to the illegal occupation of my people 
makes me nauseous. We are responsible. We must repair the doing of our own country. If not us, then who? And if not now, then when? MLK radically opposed US imperialism, most notably the Vietnam War. And because of this, he was outcasted by both the US government and mainstream society. This directly parallels with the treatment of those who support the Palestinian plight for freedom in America. Because it is anti-colonial and anti-imperial stances that make you a target in the U.S. We face being ostracized by Zionist forces every day, whether it be through local laws or bills passed that defend Israel, being put on blacklists and getting docs, getting kicked out of universities for our political stances. We are in a constant battle with the enabler. Looking back to the moral courage of MLK in the face of powerful retaliation, we draw profound inspiration from him in the fight to free Palestine. As he put it, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an escapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. MLK was a strong believer that none of us are free until all of us are free. Our causes are all connected. Last week, 15-year-old Palestinian child Adam Ayyad was murdered. The same week, 13-year-old black child Quran Blake was murdered, right here in the streets of D.C. Where is the outrage when our children are murdered? Where is the legal accountability or consequence? And these are just two of millions of children who are murdered and deprived of justice by the system. No matter what you are fighting for, know that we are all fighting for the same thing. We fight to abolish this system built on racism, white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, imperialism. We fight for justice. Our brothers and sisters in Palestine are not free until our black brothers and sisters in America are. So, as we remember all of our glorious martyrs today, I will remember Quran, and I ask that you remember Adam. Thank you. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. And I'm Asa Win Stanley. Today we'll be talking about the Electronic Intifada's top stories of 2022. And we're delighted to be joined again by Executive Director Ali Abu Nira not only to take a look back at the past year in Palestine and Palestine-related news, but also to discuss the state of journalism, Western complicity in Israel's apartheid regime, and how activism in support of Palestinian rights continued to shape the narrative. Let's start by talking about the unmitigated violence that Israel has inflicted on Palestinians over the last 12 months. Uh, Around 200 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces and settlers so far this year or have died from injuries sustained in previous years. And just some statistics from our recent reporting, uh, at least 34 Palestinian children have been killed by Israeli forces or settlers in the West Bank so far this year. Additionally, 17 Palestinian children were killed during Israel's three-day offensive in the Gaza Strip in August. At least nine of them were killed in Israeli strikes, and others were killed by rockets fired by armed groups in Gaza or in ambiguous circumstances. We also saw the execution of Palestinian journalists, most uh, notoriously the murder of Palestinian-American Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akleh in May. 
And the U.S. State Department continues to dismiss and ignore forensic evidence that an, that an Israeli sniper intentionally murdered her. Ali, we saw the killing or injuring of Palestinians nearly every day this year, including during the August attacks on Gaza and the political fueling of this violence by Israel's fascist government officials. Can you talk about Israel's sweeping policies of violence in 2022 and what stands out to you when we look back over this year? It seems like it's almost a daily ritual to wake up and see the names and faces of the Palestinians who've been killed overnight, uh, as it is overnight for us sitting, uh, you know, as I am in the U.S., um, in towns, villages, refugee camps, cities across Palestine. And this year, already, the year's not over, uh, but Israel killed more Palestinians in the West Bank this year since at least 2005. That's when uh, OCHA, the UN agency, uh, UN humanitarian agency, started keeping these statistics. And that includes more than 50 children, as you uh, noted, uh, Nora. This violence is escalating uh, because it's a direct consequence of Israel's continued theft and expansion on Palestinian land. Settler colonialism is an inherently violent process. And uh, so there's no such thing as Israeli settlements, Israeli colonization, Israeli dominance of the Palestinians without this brutal violence. And at the same time that the violence has been escalating, it seems that uh, Western governments and uh, Arab governments, who are generally client regimes, are also escalating their rewards for Israel so they can carry on with killing as usual. Um, you know, it, there's been a lot of focus over the last uh, month or so about the new Israeli government officials and, you know, a lot of hand wringing. Oh, this is the, you know, the most extreme government, you know, we've ever seen. But, but as, as you've been saying, you know, this is just a continuation. I think last year you said something like it's a, a, a you know, a different executioner, but the same acts. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of the, the you know, of Itamar Ben Gavir, um, and the formation of this new uh, Israeli government? Right. As we're speaking, Nora, Benjamin Netanyahu is putting the finishing touches, so to speak, to his new coalition. And as I think viewers and listeners will know, it's going to include Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, the two leaders of this party called uh, Jewish Power or Jewish Strength, depending on, on how you uh, translate it. And who are these people? Well, Itamar Ben-Gvir is uh, notorious as a inciter uh, of violence against Palestinians. He's a settler. He's often in Hebron, where some of the most violent and extreme uh, settlers are. And I think for me, the most uh, indelible image of Itamar Ben-Gvir is from when he was uh, younger. There's Israeli television footage of him uh, in 1994, or 1995, excuse me, dressed up for Purim as Baruch Goldstein. Who is Baruch Goldstein? He is the American uh, Jewish settler from Brooklyn who uh, 
on February 25th of 1994, on the third Friday of Ramadan, went into the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron and uh, machine gunned to death the 29 Palestinian men and boys as they were praying. And a year later on Purim, uh, Baruch Goldstein dressed up, uh, excuse me, Itamar Ben-Gvir dressed up as Baruch Goldstein, this mass killer, and said on Israeli national television, he's my hero. Now, if you think that was just some kind of youthful uh, foolishness on behalf of uh, Ben-Gvir, that's not at all the case. As recently as 2019, he bragged about keeping a uh, portrait of uh, Baruch Goldstein, the mass murderer, on his living room wall, and he continues to incite, uh, directly incite violence against Palestinians. As recently as October, he showed up in occupied East Jerusalem as settlers were attacking Palestinians, and Palestinians in their neighborhoods and refugee camps were, you know, exercising their right to protest, to fight back. Um, ben Gvir showed up uh, brandishing a pistol and urging settlers, if Palestinians uh, throw stones, shoot them. Just, you know, shoot them in the street, like, you know, the same tactics of British colonialists in South Africa or India or French colonialists in, in Algeria, but this is 2022. And Ben Gvir and Smotrich, who is no different, I mean, these are cut from the same cloth, are uh, slated for top uh, so-called national security posts in Netanyahu's government. So, of course, this is causing a lot of hand-wringing, uh, particularly among sort of liberal Zionist uh, Israel lobby groups in Britain and in the United States and other countries, because, you know, they're saying, oh, Ben Gvir is a step too far. Israel's uh, lovely, precious democracy is being threatened by, uh, uh, you know, ogres uh, like Ben Gvir and Smotrich. But the reality is the violence and the hatred and the incitement of Ben Gvir and Smotrich has always been Israeli government policy and practice. I mean, the people who carried out the massacres in Deir Yassin and Tantura in 1948 were not any different from uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich. The difference now is that Israel has discovered that uh, it will enjoy unconditional support no matter what it does. It's I'm kind of reminded of when Donald Trump famously said, you know, I could shoot someone de dead in the middle of Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't affect my popularity. And he was right for at least a very long time. And Israel mm -hmm. is really, in, it's the Donald Trump of nations in that sense. Israel can do whatever it wants to Palestinians. And U.S. politicians, particularly top Democrats, of course, Republicans, but top Democrats uh, and British politicians, whether it's Keir Starmer, uh, who leads the Labour Party, I'm sure we'll talk about that, European Union leaders, whoever it is, the leaders of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, ben Gvir was uh, warmly welcomed at the um, United Arab Emirates, Emirates Embassy in Tel Aviv recently. There are photos of the ambassador there uh, warmly greeting him. 
So Israel's discovered it could do what it wants, and the unconditional support from governments will continue. So why disguise it? Why not put somebody who, who has a uh, loving portrait of Baruch Goldstein on his li- living room wall in charge of national security? From Israel's perspective, there's no downside. Right, right. Let's uh, rewind a little bit more and talk about the three days uh, in August when Israel uh, attacked Gaza. You know, this comes on the heels of May of 2021 uh, when when Israel launched uh, its previous attack on Gaza. Can you talk a little bit about what happened this past August and the significance of how it ended uh, so quickly? What happened was that the so-called centrist, moderate uh, government of uh, Yair Lapid, uh, the outgoing government, uh, launched a surprise attack on Gaza to assassinate a senior official of Islamic Jihad, one of the Palestinian resistance resistance groups in his home, shattering the... uh, ceasefire that had prevailed since May of 2021, Israel's last spasm of, you know, its last brutal orgy of violence in Gaza. This violence is, of course, ongoing. We're talking about the sort of the big conflagrations that uh, start to draw attention from the rest of the world. And, you know, it's such a typical pattern Israel always breaks these ceasefires, and then when Palestinians respond in any way, that then becomes the justification uh, by Israel's supporters for Israel to attack Palestinians back. I think it ended. It it, it was three days of horror in Gaza. You know, not to, not to underestimate it, and uh, dozens of people were killed, as you noted, seventeen children, uh, Nora. Uh, But the Palestinian groups weren't looking for that fight with Israel. They didn't start it, and they weren't trying to escalate it. Uh, At the time, Israel attacked uh, an Islamic Jihad leader, and in coordination with the other resistance groups, Islamic Jihad launched uh, rocket fire towards Israel in response to the Israeli attack. But there was a joint decision by the resistance groups, they have what they call the Joint Operation Room, not for for the other major groups, particularly Hamas, the largest uh, resistance faction, not to enter the fight. In other words, they were not seeking escalation. The message they were sending is, we're ready to escalate if we have to, because we will defend Palestinians in Gaza, but we're not looking for it. And so I think it was the uh, cooler heads of the Palestinian resistance leaders uh, that managed to stop this uh, uh, orgy of Israeli violence from becoming even worse as it was in May 2021 or 2014 or 2008 or so many of the countless times Israel has done this. But I think what it was... You know, the Israelis have this term called mowing the lawn, which is just a a psychopathic term. You can imagine 
the grass gets too long, so you take out the lawnmower and, and cut the grass every week or two weeks or whatever it is. What they mean by mowing the lawn is that if Palestinians in Gaza get the idea that they can resist or stand up to Israel, then you have to go in and do a massacre in order to keep them down again. That's what Israel means by mowing the lawn. So every now and then Israel wants to do these mowing the lawn massacres in Gaza just to make sure that that message from their perspective gets through. That was Ali Abunima speaking on the Electronic Intifada podcast. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Yeah, it's a depressingly frequent story, you know, yeah. the Israeli attacks on Gaza that we have to continue to return to time and time and again. And, um, you know, every time it happens, I feel like in the West, in Britain, and I don't know if this is your experience in the US, but I feel like activists, usually the younger generation of activists, we all have this kind of moment where we think oh it's so clear now surely things are going to change there's going to be you know a sort of sea change and um it never quite happens although you know i think things have changed over time and um you know you were talking earlier about uh itamar ben and the whole new government coming in now in, in inside israel and um I find it really interesting because for me, I do think it's an interesting moment because for many years, I mean, for decades, really, um, it was always put out by liberal Zionist propagandists, really, the, this idea that, um, you know, oh, these are the extremists, the Kahanists, you know, the followers of, of Rabbi Maya Kahana, as um, Ben Gvir and Smotrich are, um, who was this really kind of psychopathic um, settler, Jewish-American settler from Brooklyn, who was a real um, extremist. And I think that um, the kind of liberal Zionist propaganda that was put out to me was um, one of the things about it was there would be from time to time, Israel would ban one of, one of the right. Arab, Palestinian Arab parties inside the Knesset. You know, there were several... Um, part of, there's been attempts to ban them. I think that at one point there was a Palestinian Arab party that was banned. Um, and then they would sort of cover that by saying, oh, well, we're going to ban like the Kach party, which was one of the Kahanist parties, was banned at the same time as one of them. And so they were trying to say, oh, look, there's, there's extremists on both sides and we're sort of right. banning them. But now, you know, they're not only in Tennessee, but they're leading the government. They have these leading positions in the government. Um, and, you know, I, it's, uh, it's interesting because, like, like you said, they're no different in many ways from the people who carried out the, you know, the Day Yassin massacre and the Tantura massacre. You know, it, if, you, if you look in the history, Day Yassin massacre, yes, it was carried out by the Egun and the Lichai, the the revisionist Zionists, the right-wing Zionists who were the forerunners of the Likud party. But it was also supported, like there was, um, it was supported by the so-called 
you know, the, 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 well, I, I guess we could say they were liberal Zionists. They would have called themselves socialists. You know, the 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 Haganah, which was the the mainstream of the Zionist movement in Palestine at the time, provided um, artillery support for the Diyasin massacre. Um, and so it's you know these kind of political differences within um, Israel are really played up, I think, by by pro-Israel propagandists when. In actual fact and in actual reality, they really all work together. You know, one thing I want to disagree with you on, Asa, or not, not disagree, but maybe, maybe develop. Uh, you said that after these Israeli massacres in Gaza, we think things are you know, going to change, but then they don't. I think that has to be qualified. There is a sea change. It, it, right. But you have to be specific about what you're talking about. So, yes, the governments, whether it's the U.S. government or the EU or the Arab regimes, their client regimes who are armed by the U.S. and the EU, they don't change. They continue to, to throw themselves at Israel's feet. But there is a sea change in public opinion, and I think you can see that, for example, in the World Cup. The World Cup is really a showcase of that. And I don't know if we can add in that viral clip of the uh, England fans. But the clip is uh, an Israeli... Uh, TV channel interviewing these four English, I guess you'd call them lads, uh, <laughs> following. <laughs> I think they're more lads than chaps. Yeah. Can correct me. Uh, fo- uh, following uh, England beating uh, Senegal. I'm impressed at myself for knowing wow. that it was Senegal. <laughs> and so the Israeli reporter, you know, is just very excited about this. And, oh, you know, is it coming home? In other words, England England bringing the trophy home. And then he says, you know, I guess roll the clip. But the fact that this, I think it was so unexpected, you know, there has been incredible uh, displays of solidarity from players. You know, the Moroccan team, when they won their famous victory against uh, Spain, brought out the Palestinian flag. And there have been so many examples of that. And there's been no popular pushback to that. On the contrary, people seem to be loving it all over the world. And yeah. to me, that's 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 a symbol. I mean, the world... That has is, changed. Yeah. That, has, that has changed. And Asa, maybe at some point you want to talk about how in the UK you have these Palestine action activists who have been going around literally smashing up Israeli arms factories in the UK. And I don't know now how many have been charged with criminal damage and other crimes. I can't crimes. keep count, honestly. And, and they keep every single time so far, knock on wood, getting acquitted by yeah. judges, by juries in the UK who are accepting the argument that, yes, under normal circumstances, going and smashing windows and equipment in, you know, a quiet town in in Britain would be a crime. 
but they're accepting the argument that these acts are justified because they aim to stop a bigger crime, which is Israel's uh, violations of the rights of the Palestinians. So that that's, to me, again, a sign of the sea change. And there's similar things in the U.S. as well that we see going on. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that is something to, to celebrate. It, it's, of course not yet translating into the kind of change we want to see in terms of what governments are doing, but Israel has lost, Israel has completely lost the battle for hearts and minds, and there's no going back on that. Yeah. Let's um, let's uh, talk about the execution of Shirin Abu Akleh and how that um, reverberated around the world, not just in, you know, Palestine-related uh, activism circles or uh, across Palestine itself, but but really around the world because of the just naked, brutal um, impunity uh, that, that Israel um, has enjoyed, uh, you know, for the last 75 years, but also um, specifically uh, around Shirin's uh, assassination. Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, I just I, you know when 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 it was talked about, um, you know, in the mainstream press in in Western media, um, what was still left out of the discussion was what the Israeli army was doing in Jenin mm. in the first place. That was never interrogated it was never debated or analyzed or given any context whatsoever it was just like a natural thing that the israeli occupation army mm. was in janine at the time um ali can you talk a little bit about uh shirin abu akleh and and uh, you know the 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 ongoing fight to to you know to bring justice for her for her family um and for you know countless other palestinian journalists yeah, I think, uh, you know, that that morning, I, I was actually in, in, in Amman, in Jordan, on the morning of May 11th, when Shirin Abu Akleh was killed. And had I been in the U.S., I would have been asleep. But I was up early, and this was all unfolding basically live on social media. And later... Uh, you know, at the beginning, some of the clips were circulating, just the utter horror, because people knew Shirin Abu Akleh. She'd been a fixture on Al Jazeera screens for 25 years. She was 50, 51 years old. And she, so for half her life, she had been in that role and she was just trusted and loved by Palestinians and a fixture. And one of the real universally known and respected figures. She was a great journalist, and she was someone who, you know, people would say she was very courageous in hindsight, but you just took it for granted that Shireen was always going to be there and doing her job. And that's what she was doing that morning in Janine when she was gunned down in cold blood, executed, live on television uh, as she was wearing a helmet and a vest, clearly marked uh, press. And it was clearly uh, a marksman who was able to 
shoot her in the head despite her protective gear and what what can you say i think the message that was sent whether intentionally or not by israel and and i think there's reasonable grounds to believe intentionally is that look even shirin abu akleh is not safe we can do what we want to her so don't think any of you are safe and not and watch us do this with complete impunity and that's what has happened up to this point because of course the israeli spin machine immediately went into gear naftali bennett the prime minister uh at the time immediately put out videos on twitter just outright lying fake videos claiming that palestinian gunmen had killed shirina bakle what i think if there's any sort of comfort in what what happened was how quickly israel lies unraveled and journalist after journalist and human rights group after human rights group quickly went in and they were able to debunk the israeli government's lies but selam uh, the israeli human rights group did uh, an um, uh, incredible thread on twitter immediately showing how the videos that bennett had posted could not have those could not have been the people who killed shirina boakle then you had alhaq which did a field investigation immediately afterwards uh, and then you had i think it's now n- nine independent investigations and that included investigations from human rights groups but also cnn the washington post the new york times uh and others that all reached the same conclusion it couldn't have been done by palestinians it almost certainly was done by israel and that changed the narrative it forced israel first of all it forced the biden administration to admit yeah israel probably did it but you know we don't think they did it deliberately i mean the us of course tried to help israel cover it up but they weren't able to and israel wasn't able to they eventually had to come out in september and admit yeah we we did it but it wasn't a, a criminal you know it wasn't a criminal act. Uh, lina uh, abu akleh uh, uh, shirina barkley's niece and the rest of the family have waged a determined campaign in the name of shirin and in the name of all palestinians who are subjected to this horror insisting that there be accountability and justice and demanding that the us launch its own uh investigation into the killing and that there be criminal accountability and just as of the last few days al jazeera with the support of the family actually filed uh, a criminal complaint at the international criminal court we'll have to see if that goes anywhere given the court's constant foot dragging on the question of palestine i want to mention in this context that the year started 2022 started with the murder of another palestinian american because of course everyone knows i think at this point that shirina bakle is palestinian american which is is why there is this particular demand on the united states government to insist on accountability but the at the beginning of the year on january 12th uh, omar asad 
a Palestinian American uh, great grandfather, uh, the father father of seven, and grandfather of seventeen, I think it was, and uh, great grandfather of three, seventy eight years old, had retired from forty years of you know running small grocery stores uh, in and around Milwaukee. Wisconsin and the Chicago area. After 40 years, he moved back to his village of Jeljilia. He and his wife, uh, Nazmiya, built a house in order to enjoy their retirement years around friends and family. And on that night of January 12th, he was on his way home from driving home across his village uh, from a relative's house where they'd been playing cards and drinking tea and watching TV, just having a good time. And he was stopped by Israeli soldiers, forced out of the car, shackled, blindfolded, frog-marched to uh, a construction site where other Palestinians were being blindfolded and detained, horribly abused, and then just left dead in the street. And the autopsy found that it was the shock and the stress. He'd had quadruple bypass surgery few years earlier. This was a, an elderly man, not in good health, who had not done anything to anyone. And he was just brutalized and left dead. And the US government, his family, uh, I wrote about this, uh, his, his family have also demanded that the US Justice Department investigate and they have done nothing. They haven't even answered the requests. But recently, we've seen some action from the U.S. government uh, where the, the specific unit who, whose soldiers killed uh, Omar Asad is now being sort of tentatively investigated by the U.S. government under this, the so-called Leahy Law. It's far from enough. It's far from adequate. Uh, but to the extent that the U.S. is being forced to pay attention to these horrible crimes, it's because of the pressure from the families. It's because of the pressure from activists. It's because of the pressure from members of Congress, including 24 senators who wrote demanding a U.S. investigation uh, and accountability for Shirin Abu Akhla's killing. And, and similarly, lawmakers have uh, made demands related to Omar Assad. And that, in turn, is because of, of the grassroots pressure. Those, those senators aren't just waking up one morning and saying, I, I want to do this. So again, those are the signs. Those are the things we can celebrate. No, it's not enough. No, there hasn't been justice for Shirin or for Omar uh, Assad. But justice comes from the grassroots. It doesn't come from people sitting in offices on high, uh, meeting it out. And so that, but of course, just to wrap up this thought, we're talking about two Palestinians here who are you who happen to be US citizens. And so there is slightly more attention but remember the vast majority, in fact, all Palestinians killed this year and, and any other year. This is done with impunity. There are no investigations. There are no, there's no justice. There's no, where is the International Criminal Court? Why has it been sitting 
on the, the Palestine situation, even though they opened a formal investigation. Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor, has done absolutely nothing. He hasn't even mentioned Palestine until the last couple of days. For the first time, he mentioned Palestine and said he hopes to visit in 2023. Absolutely pathetic. Yeah, I think um, one of the defining images of the year from Palestine for me was, you know, that video footage of Shireen Abu Akhla's funeral being attacked by Israeli troops. I mean, it just said so much, you know, even in death, the Israeli occupation soldiers just won't leave Palestinians alone, you know, that um, there was this... You know, for all the tears and and for the tragedy of of uh, Shireen's death, in a way, there was a beauty in the moment of Palestinians coming together to celebrate her life. And Shireen was uh, of Christian background as well, so she was coming from a church, and Palestinian Christians and Muslims all together celebrating her life. Um, and but even that moment was brutally attacked by these Israeli occupation thugs, and it was. Um, to me, it just said so much, and it just showed uh, f- for a global audience, really, Israel's crimes for for so many people. Yeah. Um, it, re- it really did. And, you know, those images were so shocking to people. I mean, people looked at that around the world and said, you killed her. Why do you need to attack her funeral? And that that sort of heart-stopping moment where it looked like, her coffin was about to fall from the shoulders of the the pallbearers as they were being brutally beaten and clubbed by these Israeli thugs in uniforms. And and they they managed, I don't know how they managed to keep her up. Yeah. Keep the keep the coffin up and prevent just what have would have been just an utter horrifying already on top of a horrifying situation, an even more horrifying situation. But there is a logic to why Israel attacked the funeral. People, because of course, afterwards, when these images went around the world, Israel tried to spin it and say, oh, well, yes, we'll look into this and we'll we'll look into why did the officers behave like this. Again, trying to pass the buck down the chain of command as if this was just a local uh, misbehavior by the officers in the street. It wasn't. There were orders from the top to prevent the funeral from becoming a mass gathering of Palestinians in Jerusalem. Israel had tried to impose conditions on the family that because people wanted to carry Shireen's casket on their shoulders through the streets of Jerusalem. And Israel tried to insist it has to be transferred by a car in order to prevent this from becoming a massive march. And all over Jerusalem, they were uh, beating Palestinians, grabbing flags, trying to prevent Palestinians from holding or or, uh, showing Palestinian flags. And it failed. When you saw the aerial images of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in the streets of Jerusalem, and Israel tried and failed to stop that, it was also a sign of how tenuous Israel's grip on Jerusalem is. Because remember, Israel's propaganda is this is our city, it's our capital, no one can challenge us, we control it, we're the legitimate authority, and the Palestinians have to do what we say. And in death, Shireen showed that, no, the people of Jerusalem 
the Palestinian people of Jerusalem are in control of the city. And Israel really has a very tenuous grip on it. That, I think, too, is uh, was a very revealing moment. That was Ali Abu Nima speaking on the Electronic Intifada podcast. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine has revealed deep fissures among those who identify as the left in the United States. And those profound differences were on prominent display recently when a group called the Ukraine Solidarity Network issued a statement which supports more arms and military support for Ukraine. Following is a conversation between members of the Black Alliance for Peace about why they issued a statement opposing the network's call. The conversation originally broadcast on WPFW Pacifica Radio's Voices with Vision starts with Jacqueline Lukman, editor of Lukman Nation, and also includes Black Alliance for Peace coordinating committee chairperson Ajamu Baraka and Netfer Freeman, who is a co-host of the show, along with Craig Hall. I have been following this conflict since what we understand as the beginning, which has been what we've been allowed to understand as the beginning by Western press, which is the uh, February military action uh, by Russia in Ukraine. We've been led to believe that that is the beginning of this conflict. But because my focus has always been on understanding foreign policy and understanding U.S. imperialism in foreign policy and what it means for other countries, of course, I look deeper than what happened in February, what Russia's uh, action was in February. And that led me to all of this other information that reflects all of these uh, machinations Uh, that were going on, that were carried out by the U.S., the EU, and NATO months, years uh, before the uh, last February when Russia finally decided to do what it did. So none of the background information, none of the intentional violation of uh, at least two major agreements by the U.S. and uh, members, uh, NATO member nations was talked about in this Ukraine Solidarity Network statement. None of the attempts by Russian officials to engage at least one of those agreements, the Minsk Accords, was raised by this statement in the Ukraine Solidarity Network. And the eight-year civil war that was waged against the people in Donbass and Luhansk uh, was also not raised. And those issues are very important because when the Ukraine Solidarity Network talks about supporting the self-determination of of people, they ignore the self-determination of the people in Donbass and Luhansk and the fact that the Minsk Accords were supposed to be 
the solidification of the referendum vote of those people to formally secede from Ukraine. That agreement was violated by Ukraine. So they don't care about the self-determination of the people in Donbass and Luhansk. They only care about the self-determination of the Ukrainian government. That makes no sense to me. They say they oppose power domination as it expresses itself against smaller nations. What about the uh, a power domination of the NATO countries in coming out and right out admitting that they signed the Minsk Accords, not ever intending to adhere to them, and they did it to arm, give, time, give Ukraine time to arm in order to prepare them for a war with Russia. They say that they support Ukraine's defeat of, of Russia. Aside from the fact that that is a statement of supporting war, which is the very thing they accuse the Black Alliance uh, for Peace of doing, which we have never said in our statement, a defeated Russia, which, by the way, is something that Lloyd Austin has said is the goal of this. They're agreeing with Lloyd Austin that the goal of this conflict is to weaken or defeat Russia. That would be an absolute disaster for the rest of the world. And this claim that they're supporting ethnic and religious minority conscription, uh, you know, they're opposed to that because that's so harmful to ethnic and religious minorities in Russia who are being conscripted into the Russian army. They say nothing of the Ukrainians banning men between the ages of, I think it's 16 and 60, from leaving the regions where they live, wherever they are in the country, so they can be conscripted. And of course, nothing about the fascist repression of the Ukrainian government against the very progressive forces they claim they want to work with, labor unions, workers, and progressive forces, all who have been effectively banned as opposition under the Ukrainian government. So the, the statement from the Ukraine Solidarity Network is on its face, I believe, in absolute contradiction of the facts of the actual actions of other countries and other factors, namely the United States, the European Union and NATO that led up to this conflict. And it's also a gross mischaracterization of uh, whatever they think anti-imperialism is. And it's certainly not an anti-war statement. It is definitely a pro-war statement. As long as Ukraine buries Russia, which is precisely what the U.S. empire wants. Mm-hmm. And Jamal, in your response, if you can, Jacqueline also said that a defeat of Russia would be implications for the rest of the world be negative. Can you can you also speak to that and whatever you want? Do you mind me putting that on you? No, I think that it has to be repeated over and over again. And that is really one of the major uh, issues that many of us have with this uh, Ukrainian solidarity network, that the initiators have basically made a political choice. And that choice is to side with with the collective West, the U.S. and European powers. What we say make up the U.S., EU, NATO axis of domination. So this this position that they take in opposition to the interests of the rest of the world, 
because it is that that very uh, axis of domination that's been able to impose its interests, its worldview, its values on collective humanity now for the last few hundred years. And so for them to be emboldened with a victory in a conflict in which for the first time since the the end of the Second Imperialist War in 1945, they took on an adversary that has the, the capacity to resist, that would be in fact a disaster because we know that the like what happened when the U.S. attacked Afghanistan with relative ease, uh, many of us predicted that they were going to go into Iraq, and that's exactly what they did. The U.S. public was conditioned and prepared to support that, and that was the route that they took. The same thing would happen if they end up with a military victory, a clear-cut military victory over Russia, which can't happen, it won't happen. They will be emboldened to engage in continued uh, instability, uh, destabilization efforts in Asia, uh, using primarily Taiwan to engage in a conflict with the Chinese. So it's not in the, in the objective interest of the people of the global south for the U.S. and NATO to be the military winners. But in the process of this conflict, what also uh, differentiates us from the warmongers related or reflected in this uh, network is that we understand that in this war, it is in fact the working classes that are suffering. Uh, that, that this war that uh, did not have to happen occurred because of the conscious decisions made by the collective West uh, with very specific objectives to disarticulate the Russian and European economy. Uh, to, inf- to ensure that a pretext would be created that will allow them to uh, never see a Nord Stream 2 pipeline come on board, to undermine the, the strength of Russia in order to undermine the growing collaboration and relationship between uh, Russia and the Chinese. And to also, and people tend to forget this, is connected to Nord Stream 2 also, to undermine the ability of the German economy to compete with the U.S. Uh, in Europe. The U.S. wanted to maintain its, its relative advantage economically over the European uh, Union and the 535 million persons or so that make up the European market. So this was a calculated uh, uh, effort, and people have to understand that. And people like Bill Fletcher and even Howard Hawkins should understand that. But because of their innate uh, conservatism and their belief that the U.S. and the West, by extension, may have some capacity for benevolence, then they don't mind finding themselves on the same side with these criminals. We say very clearly, without any uh, apology, that these are criminal regimes. These regimes represent the the interests of our enemies. And as crude as it might seem to some people who are supposed to be sophisticated, sometimes the enemy of your enemy might be your friend, okay? These are strategic and tactical questions that, that people in struggle make, okay? So 
these folks have no uh, intent in upholding the very principles that they uh, raised, like the principles of self-determination, like Jackie uh, pointed out. Uh, these are selective arguments that they will advance related to self-determination. Because the same principles that were under fire in places like Nicaragua, Syria, Libya, some of these same individuals who signed on to this Ukraine Solidarity Network were individuals who supported interventions on the part of the West, aggression on the part of the West to undermine the legitimacy and the sovereignty of those nations. So we understand, you know, the terms of struggle. We're not going to be confused by these high-minded, uh, petty bourgeois claims to morality taken up by these uh, uh, imperialist propagandists. Uh, we cut through that so that we can see very clearly what the real interests are in play so that as Africans at war, we're not confused and we will make the proper decisions we need to make uh, to determine how we move in a very complicated historical moment. And Ajamu Baraka will have the last word on today's show. He was speaking on WPFW Pacifica Radio's Voices with Vision with Jacqueline Lukman, editor of Lukman Nation and co-host of By Any Means Necessary on Sputnik Radio, Netfer Freeman and Craig Hall. This debate on the left is occurring as new anti-war mobilizations are being born to oppose this U.S. proxy war against Russia. Mobilizations by the Answer Coalition and the People's Forum have been held in New York City. And on February 19th, a rally titled Rage Against the War Machine is being held at the Lincoln Memorial, uniting the left and right and featuring talk show host Jimmy Dore. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averum. Special thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.